0: Design Matters is on summer break, but we thought it was a good time to repost some of our favorite episodes. This one was originally posted in October of 2015. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. This year is the 10th anniversary of the podcast. Ten years of designers and other creative types talking about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with Timothy Goodman about how, after barely getting through high school,
1: he went on to a very visible career that he is still in the process of defining. I still don't consider myself an illustrator, really. It's weird, because What do
0: you consider yourself? I consider myself a
1: designer. Here's Debbie Millman.
0: With the possible exception of parents of small children, who doesn't love a Sharpie? The classic Sharpie is a permanent marker for the distinctive smell that lays down on the page a saturated, satisfying line. Chances are you've got more than one Sharpie in your house. It's the number one selling permanent marker in the world, and it's also a favorite tool of many designers, including Timothy Goodman. In fact, his new book is called Sharpie Art Workshop, Techniques and Ideas for Transforming Your World. Timothy has been on Design Matters before with Jessica Walsh to talk about their book, 40 Days of Dating. Timothy Goodman, welcome back to Design Matters. Thanks. Thanks, Debbie. Thanks for having me. The first thing I want to talk about is something that came up as a Google prompt in the research I was doing for our show today. Why is a search option Tim Goodman birthday? Really? <laughs>
1: yeah. I didn't know that. I was,
0: I was like, did he have a big surprise party? Everybody was wants like, to know how old a, I am. A I worldwide, guess. like, let's send him a tweet thing on his birthday. I know. I didn't get it, but it, I thought it was an, un, an an unusual enough prompt. It was the top five. It was in, you know, the, the yeah. end. Yep, yeah, it was the number five huh. prompt. Now I'm not going to tell you how old I am. I'm not going to ask. <laughs> <laughs> so you grew up in Cleveland, and I understand that your design talent was first evident in the stolen hall passes you replicated and used to get out of class. Why did you want to get out of class so much? Because I was really interested in being bad in high school. So it was a stance. Yeah, I loved the,
1: my, my heroes were people like Ferris Bueller and Zach Morris, you know, like those people who got over on authority and did it with a smile. And you kind of liked them for it in a way.
0: So it's, good bad boys yeah, or bad good boys. Bad good boys, yeah. I read that at one point you skipped your Spanish class 28 days in a row.
1: Yeah, and we would take a, a hall pass and then you, I would replicate it in Microsoft Word and I would learn how to forge all my teachers' signatures. And we, so we had a whole kind of thing going on. And my friends. Why
0: were you such a bad boy? Or why were you such a good bad boy?
1: Well, I don't know. I mean, the easy answer is that I grew up without my father. My biological father wasn't around. And I always kind of had this sense of, I just wanted to, we can curse, right? Yeah. I just wanted to fuck things up. Because I always kind of had this chip on my shoulder. I felt resentment that I was kind of abandoned in a way. And I think I always wanted to do something to say, hey, look, I'm alive. Look, I'm doing this. Look, I I have an opinion. I I can do things the way I want to do them.
0: Do you still feel that way?
1: In a way, yeah, sure. I still feel like I kind of snuck in through the back door and I'm kind of like, there's nothing
0: you can do about it now. The back door of what? I, I don't know. The back door
1: of my career, of my life,
0: Right after high school, you worked for a friend of yours named Dave Suster. Yep. I read in Reader's Digest that for nearly five years you painted homes, hung wallpaper, and drywall. Yeah. Were you planning on becoming a carpenter or a contractor? No,
1: it just kind of fell into my lap because I was such a bad high school student, I barely graduated, and I didn't really have, I couldn't even get into a state school. I was taking some classes at a community college in Cleveland, and a friend of mine said, hey, I have my cousin-in-law who has this company. He's a really talented guy. He does a lot of good, you know, a lot of things, home improvements. That we worked in million dollar homes all over cleveland and so i started working for him as a helper i mean he taught me he really is my mentor to life i I
0: read that he
1: was a father figure to you yeah he still is and he would you know he had all these kind of funny sayings like he would take me on like client meetings to go look at how homes and uh if he saw that i had my hands in my pocket he would slap my hand and he would say take your hands out of your pocket it's a sign of laziness
0: Wow, that sounds like Whiplash. Yeah.
1: yeah, <laughs> No, that movie totally reminds me of my relationship with him. And so in, even to this day, when I have my hands in my pocket, I'm, I think about him and what he would say. And he had all these kind of funny, colorful sayings like that.
0: So you worked for him for about three years at the same time you were going to, I believe it was Cuyahoga Community? Cuyahoga
1: Community College, yeah, in Cleveland.
0: And so what made you decide to pursue graphic design? Why not Well, what go- happened
1: is that, I mean, we were working in these beautiful homes all over Cleveland. And he had a degree in interior design, so he would kind of help some of his clients doing that kind of stuff. And, and you know, I, be- I kind of became his protege, and we were working constantly. I was going home with him at night to work on his home. Uh, he was renovating his home. And during that whole process, I kind of thought, hmm, maybe I want to get into t- interior design. So I kind of started with that. So I took a, a night class, and then I thought, if I'm actually going to go back to school for if, whether it's interior design or, or art or whatever— I obviously have to take all, like, I have to take math classes and English classes. And, you know, and so I started taking all these classes. I mean, I was so bad. I was learning about nouns and verbs again. I was in, like, English 09. And, and, like, yeah, it was pretty bad.
0: It's probably really helpful (laughs) now to have all that information. Yeah. After three years there, you transferred to the School of Visual Arts in New York City. What was that like for you going from Cleveland to New York? And what made you decide to, to take that trajectory?
1: Well, I realized early on when I was going to the, the community college and working full-time as well that you have one life, you know? Like, and it's, it's cliche as hell, but, like, what am I going to do with it? If I'm going to do this, I want to, like, go to a major metropolitan area. I want to really pursue it and see what happens. And if I fall on my face, then, then I'll know. So I kind of went and, I, and looked at all these schools, and when I went to SV, I knew right away. New York just felt right I yeah, read that
0: you applied for over 50 scholarships. Is that yeah. true? Yeah,
1: because— 50? Yeah. 50. I think I applied till close to 100 scholarships.
0: And how many did you get?
1: Uh, I probably got like four or five. But do you understand? Like, there are so many scholarships. There are tall people scholarships.
0: <laughs> you qualify for that. Yeah, yeah. No, did you there, get that one? Yeah, I got that one.
1: <laughs> and there are scholarships through banks, that you don't know about, you have to ask. How did you find um, out about it all? Because I read this book, How to Go to College for Free. I literally got this book, How to Go to College for Free. I could kiss this guy, Ben Kaplan. I have no idea who he is. <laughs> and I read this entire book. And what I learned most, because I don't come from money, so when I decided I was going to go back to school, I was going, I had to figure out, especially you know in New York and go to a private art school, how am I going to pay for this? And reading this book, what I learned the most, and I still think about to this day, is is that I learned how, because obviously if you're going to win a scholarship, you have to learn how to differentiate yourself from the thousands of other people who are applying to the scholarship. And you have to learn how to write about yourself and how to tell your story and your narrative in a compelling and memorable and different way. And so... That's what the biggest thing I got from that book. So I had to I was going home every night after work or after school and writing about myself to say, well, "Hey, this is why I deserve this scholarship or that scholarship." So
0: And did the scholarships pay for most of your education? Yeah. That's fantastic, Tim. Yeah, and, that Rich, is and Richard
1: Wilde at SVA, he was he was really amazing because I was, you know, I would make books of my work and send it to him and I was always kind of hounding him and being kind of aggressive about why you should you know, give me more money and all this stuff. So, yeah.
0: was your first job out of school at VH1, or did you work there while you were still in school?
1: Yeah, no, VH1 was an internship. That's what I figured. When I was a junior at SVA.
0: And you were a copywriting assistant?
1: <laughs> yeah, I <it> was a... <laughs> How happen? <laughs> well, I figured that I'm going to school for design, and I like writing, so why not try to get an internship in a little something a little different? And it was awesome.
0: Your senior thesis was titled, Kids Need Dads and it considered the tenets of parenthood and masculinity. You created flashcards and posters that detailed both the literal and symbolic tools for manhood. What made you decide to do this kind of project, and what are some of the literal and symbolic tools for manhood? (laughs)
1: Well, I mean, I decided to do it, obviously, as I said, I grew up without my biological father, and it's been something so alive in me my whole life, you know, and I think why I acted out when I was younger, and then I think it also propelled me to try to, quote-unquote, make something out of myself. I'm just like millions of other people who grew up without their biological father, and I was interested in it, you know, and so many of my friends— who grew up without their dads. And I think about, you know, there were like 10 of us that were friends growing up, and I think seven of us grew up without... We didn't have a man in the house, you know, and how that changes the trajectory of your life. And so I was interested in just exploring the facets of that.
0: What kind of tools for manhood can you share with us? If you can remember, this was a little while ago.
1: Well, the tools for manhood, those are flashcards based about my relationship with Dave. Oh, I see. Yeah, so that was, you know, all the things he had taught me what I gained from that experience, who I've become from that experience, all the sayings, you know, he would say to me and stuff like that. So that's what that was all about. So
0: now I understand. I read that when you sent the thesis to Dave in Cleveland, when he received it, he cried. Yeah, he cried. And and so now I understand why. Yeah, yeah. In your senior year, you met John Fulbrook, who first was your teacher.
1: No, he was not my teacher. He wasn't. No, I just would always harass him. <laughs>
0: Why didn't you ever take a class with him?
1: Uh, I don't know. It was interesting. I didn't want to take a class from him, but I knew I wanted to work for him.
0: Wow. Yeah. So you just stalked him and became I sta- friends with
1: him. Yeah, I would stalk. I would, you know, my junior year, I would, I would go and I would meet with him. I mean, I remember him kicking him me out of his office because he was like, I've been talking to you for two hours. I need to work. Get the hell out of here. You know, you know John, know Of course, John with, yeah.
0: was the first guest on Design yeah. Matters, yeah. guest number one.
1: I remember, I remember when I was working for him eight years ago when I started, and I listened to that podcast. Oh, my
0: God. <laughs> I don't think, does it exist anymore? It I think exists, it's, but it's not online anymore because uh, it's that John. bad. Does, yeah. I have to bring him back. <laughs> have him. I mean, I was so nervous doing that show. It was my first show. We were talking about books. I had book his book covers that he designed all over the room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was on a telephone line. That's hilarious. And and of course, I you know John, I wanted John to be on the show, but the big reason he was my first guest was because he's so animated, yeah. and can talk for as long as you want him to about anything. Yeah. I figured if I choked, he could just take over.
1: <laughs> I love that. I love that. Um, yeah, and so. Uh, I wanted to work for him. I knew that because you know, and you know, he reminded me a lot of Dave in that way. And I felt like I needed someone similar to Dave, starting my career, someone who was animated, someone who wasn't afraid to be loud, and would put me in my place if I, you know. And I was able, and and that's where our relationship became because he wasn't afraid to tell me how he thought, and I would kind of. Bark back sometimes, and and that was an interesting
0: dynamic between the two of us. So you wanted to go work for him at Simon and Schuster, but from what I understand, quote unquote, you didn't give a shit about designing book covers. You just wanted to work for
1: John. Well, I mean, obviously, designing book jackets is such an amazing art form and such a you know a novelty. And I was so I'm so grateful to still do freelance book covers, but. It wasn't about book covers. My my aspiration in design wasn't to become a book jacket designer per se. I wanted to work for him. I didn't care if he was designing uh, baby diapers or some shit. I wanted to work for him. I felt, you know, as a young designer, his energy was important. And I I still tell my students to this day, for a lot of people, it's not so much about what you want to do, but who you want to work for and who you want to learn from early on in your career. And so that was important for me.
0: John then took you with him when he made an about face with his own career and went to work with Brian Collins. Yeah. And that began your work in branding. Yep. Everyone I know who's worked for Brian has said it's changed their lives. Would you concur? Yes. So yes. so talk about that experience because I know Brian works really long hours. He's yeah. really, I mean, he's a genius, so he's yeah. very intense. Yep. Talk about what that experience was well, like. Well,
1: yeah, I mean, I was fresh out of school still. So I think I, we, you know, I'd only spent about eight or nine months at Simon Schuster for, out of SVA before I went to go work for Brian with John. And, I mean, I could go on all day about why Brian was so pivotal in my career, but I think the most important aspect is I remember him sitting me down once. This was maybe maybe a year after I had been working from him. And he saw I'd been writing, and he saw I'd been kind of... I started my blog on my website. I think I had just won, like, the Young Guns Award or something. And maybe I had done my first talk or something. And he sat me down, and he said, Listen, you can be... A designer or you can be a voice in your community and what do you want to be and how do you want to get there and how can I help you and more than anything Brian is an amazing teacher I really appreciate that
0: so when he said that to you you can be a designer or you can try to be a voice in your community how did that impact you what did what did well, you, it gives think you at the that you co- when
1: you have support like that especially from someone like your boss who you know traditionally speaking your boss wants you to focus on the work you're doing for him and the company at hand When he is encouraging you to go and talk and write and do your thing and, you know, I was doing a lot of freelance for the New York Times at the time and other editorial illustrations I was doing, he would let me do that. He allowed space for me to do that. And that support was obviously very paramount because it gave me the confidence to keep pursuing it.
0: What was one of the more memorable projects you worked on with him at Collins?
1: Uh, when I first got there, we were working on the CNN Grill for the 2008 Democratic and Republican National Conventions. Yeah, just a small project. Just a small project. Um, and then we worked on the entire Microsoft store identity from the logo to the whole store experience.
0: Um, you were also freelancing at this point. Oh, yeah. How did you get your freelance commissions? Were you hustling? Were you? Yeah,
1: I was just hustling. I mean, really where it started was with John Fulbright. He first gave me Brian Ray's email, and I first met Rodrigo. And so Brian, Brian Ray. Ray. Then
0: he was, was he? He was doing the op-ed pages, right? Yeah. The New York Times and, and then Rodrigo Corral. Of course, his... I got uh,
1: Leanne Chapton became the art director at the op-ed page right after Brian. I did a lot of work for her, and he he first gave me her her email address. So he kind of let me into his community in that way. And, and did so, you
0: freelance for Rodrigo Corral as well, the great great designer? Yeah, designer. No, I, and... I, I, yep. So when did you do your project for the Ace Hotel? Was it in this period?
1: Yeah, it was right when I was leaving Brian to go work for Apple. And so I was about three or four years out of school. And I... Um,
0: How did that happen? How did you get this project? And can you describe it for our listeners? It's an extraordinary project. Yeah,
1: I mean, it first came through the Art Directors Club. Um, I think the Ace Hotel had contacted them about hiring some young guns. I don't know why they recommended me. I didn't have anything like that in my portfolio at the time. You know, I'd, I'd done a lot of uh, editorial illustrations and book jackets, and of course, I had branding all in my portfolio, but I hadn't done anything like that. So I was just kind of a traditional designer, so to speak, at that point. And the and hotel, they, so they, they let me. They gave me this room with these two walls, and they kind of let me do what I wanted. I mean, I had to present a sketch um, and I said I wanted to draw, you know, everything I loved about New York City that could be passed to the common tourist in that room. And um, yeah, so I basically locked myself in that room all of a Memorial Day weekend and tried to figure it out and went to town. It was one of the most um, intense projects I've ever worked on because physically doing a mural takes a lot out of you.
0: You said that your work for Dave helped bring a certain physicality to your work. Is this where that first emerged? Yeah, I
1: think so, you know, um, because for years, you know, painting homes and hauling buckets of wallpaper glue up ladders for 13 hours a day and laying tile and all that stuff all came to fruition when it came to the Ace Hotel mural and now the work that I do and the murals that I do.
0: It was a real line in the sand for your career. Yeah. It changed everything.
1: Changed everything. It changed the whole trajectory of everything from that point on
0: you were then invited to take over nicholas blackman's art director position at the new york times book review after he took time off after he won the rome prize yeah. The big time. Suddenly, you're working at the New York Times. Yeah. You're what? Four years out of school at this point, if that? Five? Well,
1: actually, that was after my my year and a half at Apple.
0: Oh, okay. So I have the timing a little bit off here. Yeah, we'll have to go back to talk about what it was like to then go work for Alan Dye.
1: Yeah, yeah. So uh, that was right after I moved back to New York after Apple. Yeah, it was an incredible opportunity, and I had done a lot of illustrations for him at that point, so I wasn't gonna say no. It, you know, and I spent I think I spent about a month and a half there. And it was quite an amazing experience to see how something like the book review comes together, you know. And all of a sudden I'm I'm in meetings with, you know, these editors who I go and Google their names and they're, you know, on Charlie Rose. And (laughs) you're like, wait, who are these people? Why am I in these meetings with these people?
0: And these are like
1: literary gods.
0: How did you manage that? Did you feel intimidated? How did you manage through those meetings and hold your own? You know, you just have to be
1: confident in, in the work that you need to do putting together the book review and finding the right art for these pieces and putting together um, the special sections. And so, yeah, you just have to be confident in what you're doing and, and not be afraid to ask, you know, never be afraid to ask. So, so I was I was still emailing Nicholas while he's in Rome, like, wait, what what is this happening here? And, you know, and obviously there are a lot of great people on staff that were helping me and Matt Dorfman, who is an art director at the op-ed section, was helping me too, so.
0: John Fulbrook introduces you to Brian Collins, Brian Collins introduces you to Alan Dye. Alan Dye calls you one day and says, hey, Tim, want to come to Cupertino? <laughs> How did that work? How does that work? How do you get? What is it like getting the call to come work at Apple? I
1: actually got a call from the recruiter first. Um, and then I emailed Alan saying, is this for real? And he says, yes, it's for real. I met Alan through a, a kind of a combination of John and Brian. And uh, he would always come to the studio when he was in town. But getting a call like that was, like I said, like I was like, is this funny? Is this Did you think is, you were being
0: punked? <laughs> a little bit, yeah. <laughs> Let's screw with Tim's head. Let's pretend we're offering him a job at Apple. <laughs> I can see those guys doing that, but mm. I know you really went there.
1: Yeah, and so I flew out there and went for an interview and met all these, you know, there's just, just so many amazing people, talented people there and people you've never heard of because they're not in the New York design scene, they're not people who are necessarily interested in winning awards or having their work in an annual or something. They're just extremely talented people out there just with their heads down with one goal in mind just like putting in the work for Apple and like making amazing, you know, work and going out there and seeing that and having that perspective was really important too. You know, I don't think I would have actually worked for myself so soon if I had not gone out there. Because it wasn't necessarily, while it was great, it wasn't the right work for me. Why not? And I learned that while I was there. I think it just gave me the courage to realize that I wanted to work for myself. And I wanted to live in New York and do that. And I wanted to pursue more projects like the Ace Hotel. Because I did the Ace Hotel right before I went to Apple. And I still was trying to figure out who I was as a designer and what kind of work I wanted to do and how I wanted to position myself I think being at Apple and having that experience, it it helped propel me to take that leap.
0: I read on The Great Discontent that you said this. One day an art director at Apple came to me with a PDF deck from a third-party advertising firm. It was full of ideas and possible directions for a new project. And when I looked through it, I saw a spread that referenced the piece that I did for New York Magazine and the Ace Hotel mural. And at that moment, I realized that I was caught between being the influenced and the influencer. Yeah. Can you elaborate on that a little bit and, and tell us more about what you meant by that? Well,
1: first of all, I don't even know if I was aware of this this term influencers. That's become so watered down these days, I think. Um,
0: Oh, yeah, that was probably before clout, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now when I think about that, I only think of like, oh, are you being an influencer? And I I don't know what that means. Yeah, Um, internal
0: eye roll. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. But it was like I was caught between identities in a way. And like I said, I was caught between a world that I was in, which was a corporate world, and a world that I Actually, when I thought about it deep down inside, I, I wanted to be more in, you know, like all the freelance work I was doing. But that was just side stuff at the time. That was the stuff that was, you know, I was rushing home to do at night and on the weekends. That was the stuff that was stimulating me more. But I, I still, I needed to figure out how to get back, to get into that world, to have the courage. And so I, when I saw that deck at, when I was at Apple, I, it, it felt like I was torn between where I wanted Two worlds. to be. Yeah,
0: Exactly. Were you worried about money? Were you worried about security, getting more work? Yeah, I
1: think you worry about all that stuff, of course, when you think about going to work for yourself. You have to figure it. You have to think about those things, especially because I had been making money, and now all of a sudden, like, am I not going to make money anymore? Or am I going to, you know, how how is this all possible? How do I profit off of it as well? You know, because I think that's important as well. So, and, you know, and being in that world for a couple years, I realized – you know, there's so many terms we throw around, you know, all the time. Like what? Design thinking and strategic thinking and brand values and systemic platforms and cross pollination and all this stuff. Like what? And it just becomes, after a while, I feel like you're sitting in meetings with account people and all these people, and you, and it just becomes mechanical. It it doesn't feel human anymore. And I'm fundamentally much more interested in words like artfulness and unexpectedness and mistakes and how do i get that in my work more and how do i communicate that to an audience more and that's not to say that there's anything wrong with you it was just something that was really important for me as a young designer like how do i find my voice how do i get that in my work how do i you know because it it mattered to me
0: another quote that really moved me that i read was this A real tragedy for so many young designers is that they have to have the voice of whatever client or studio they're working for. Rarely does a young designer get the chance to put their own voice or humor or sensibilities into their work. What advice would you give to those young designers? How do they create their own self-generated voice? You know, one thing I always say is to
1: try to attempt whatever you're doing, design, creativity, as a practice and not as a profession necessarily, you know? And if you can think about it in in those terms, that there are no rules because everybody wants to be defined by labels and everybody wants to define you in in some box or label to measure themselves against. If you want to draw, draw. If you want to write, write. If you want to make weird shit, and put it on the internet, make it, and try and do it. You have to put in the time to do that stuff. But you can do that on your own time. And so that's why I like to think about it as a practice, you know, and not so much that, you know, this is some job I have to have, and and, and it's a profession, and, and there's certain rules that I have to go by. I think if you can try to liberate yourself from that, then that's a, a start.
0: You use many, many different things to make your ideas as immediate as possible in your work. Spray paint, your own photography, cheesy stock photography, yeah, <laughs> computer vector see. images, and many times a mixture of these things together with, of course, your beloved Sharpie. What is it about the Sharpie that you like so much? I mean, who doesn't like sharpies? Yeah, but why? Well, why sharpies for Tim? It,
1: to... <laughs> it just kind of fell into my lap, you know. It wasn't. I don't think it was well, somebody threw one at you and it just fell into your lap. Well, what happened is that with this hotel mural that we talked about, what happened after that is that all of a sudden, because that got some traction on blogs on the internet, and all of a sudden people see that, and then they started hiring me to do this thing. And so when I started getting hired, you know, and I was at Apple when I was. Um, when I did a couple magazine covers for New York Magazine, for Chris
0: Dixon and um, uh, for I mean, Let's just stop for one second. Isn't that amazing? You're working at Apple and you're designing covers for New York Magazine and the Times Magazine section. I mean, that's pretty amazing.
1: Yeah, I was. I feel very blessed and I, you know, and I was really hustling to try to do as much work as possible and try to um, explore as many avenues as possible. I like the new, you know, I mean, I think all designers do, but I like to put myself in positions doing things that I'm not quite sure are right or that I'm not quite sure if I know how to do, you know, and try to figure it out from there. So, but yeah, it goes back to just kind of after the Ace Hotel and then starting to get hired to do these things more and then the magazine covers and I did Time magazine cover and so then all of a sudden people want to hire you to do this thing more. You know, there's this great uh, quote by Bukowski. It's, uh, find what you love and let it kill you. (laughs) And I always think about that with this. That's fantastic. (laughs) I think that's why I just put this book out. It was just like, you know what?
0: There was another quote that I I loved that one of your old teachers said, if you want to change your look, then change your tool. Yeah. And I, I feel like that's what the Sharpie did for you in many ways.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it did. It propelled me in a whole new direction.
0: So Sharpie Workshop explores the myriad effects, techniques, mediums, and ideas about how to use Sharpie markers, whether it's making handmade gifts, to creating murals, to repurposing old objects, to simply doodling in a notebook. And you feature many different artists in the book and showcase lots of different projects and techniques. Mm -hmm. How did you find and choose the artists and the designers that you include?
1: Well, when I started thinking about who I was going to include in this book, it struck me. All the people that I was influenced by when I was in school and the people that I worked for, like John Fulbright and Brian Collins, and all the people that I was influenced, in, you know, in Nicholas Blackman and Rodrigo Corral and Brian Ray and, and Paul Sayre and all these amazing people, they were all men. <laughs> and then when I started thinking about who I was going to put in this book, I started thinking about, well, all the people that have really influenced me nowadays, my contemporaries, my peers, are women you know, and I really made a point to showcase many more women in this book than men. I think I, I highlight 11 women to only like three men because, you know, like I said, A, I'm fundamentally much more inspired by the, 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 the work that women are making right now. And I also feel that, you know, women just nowadays aren't, you know, they still aren't getting the recognition they deserve on blogs and conferences and and award shows and judging. And, you know, I wanted to do my little part by kind of highlighting many more women.
0: In the book you state, like athletes, creative people need to loosen up and stretch before the big game. Simple mark making exercises and activities are a great way to get the mind going and the blood flowing. So in what way? How could somebody get started? What would be the first thing you would tell them aside from get a piece of paper and a Sharpie?
1: Well, I I have a whole spread about scribbles. And different scribbles you can do. You know, in the morning sometimes with my notebook, I'll just scribble. I'll just make scribbles.
0: Oh, there's I'll, so much poignancy with give, scribble.
1: I'll give scribbles names. Like what? Like the uptight scribble. This, you know, and you can kind of give assign names to them. It's a lot of fun.
0: So you just recommend people just start with scribbles? Yeah, start with scribbles. See where it takes you.
1: I mean, you know, it's funny. Like, I still don't consider myself an illustrator, really. It's weird. Because what do you
0: I, consider yourself? I consider myself a, a designer,
1: I think. But it's weird because I think that when I think about the term illustrator, I feel like if I am an illustrator, because, you know, I get hired a lot by ad companies and, and it's like, when are you guys going to know that I'm not an illustrator? <laughs> are you are you ever going to, you know... Am Maybe I gonna, you need
0: to look up imposter syndrome in Wikipedia. Yeah, there
1: you go. But so my point is that I don't necessarily think I'm an amazing drawer necessarily. You know, it's like, it's just about having, you know, the audacity to go for it and do things. And so I think that... I want this book to be something that everyone can enjoy because I think that you don't have to be some amazing person who can draw to be able to make cool stuff with Sharpie necessarily. So,
0: In a chapter titled Play Nice, you quote Joseph Campbell who said, What did you do as a child that created timelessness that made you forget time? There lies the myth to live by. Yeah. You then state it's important to understand that when you engage in a creative activity for enjoyment and recreation rather than for serious or practical purposes, you can get back to the root of something that you forgot you had. In what way can you do that? In what way does that happen?
1: You just made me think of another thing Joseph Campbell said. Where you stumble, there lies your treasure, Mm, and uh, very resonant. And I think that is just you know, we're gonna talk maybe about uh, a lot of the writing I do, and I think that that is all an act of getting back to a root of something, and I think that what I mean by that is about content, whether it's drawing on a wall, everything you love about your city, or buying a two-inch canvas frame and drawing something for as a gift for someone. This stuff is accessible, and so. I think that you can kind of get to something with that.
0: In the book, you include a side project that you did with your good friend and creative partner, Jessica Walsh, which you originally began as a way to breathe new life into old objects. Can you describe the project for our listeners? Quotes on shit. (laughs) (laughs) I love to make you curse. (laughs) Quotes
1: on shit is this really great project that Jessica and I started because, well, A, we wanted to collaborate again after 40 days. And we've been working on another big, robust side project for the last year, year and a half. So we wanted to kind of do something fun and graphical together. So this idea that we, we constantly use shit, throw shit away, abandon shit steal shit, borrow shit, whatever, you know, and wh- what happens with all this shit? We went to junkyards and thrift stores and garbage and we found objects that spoke to us and we spray painted them and gave them a voice was as if they were talking back to you because they were, you know, mad or, you know, feeling abandoned. <laughs> and so, are they and, for sale anywhere? No, they're not for sale. Um, and, they, and it was also another great love of just playing off puns, you know, like writing On an ashtray, you're an (laughs) asshole.
0: This is one of several projects that you've done with Jessica. As you mentioned last year, your project, 40 Days of Dating, went viral and resulted in a gorgeous book that we talked about when you were last on the show, as well as a movie that I believe is in production now, right?
1: It is not in production. The script script is is being, yeah.
0: Yes. So you're now working on another project with Jessica, which I know is very top secret, which I believe will be out at the end of the year.
1: Yeah, it should be out right in the beginning of January, right after the first.
0: Anything you can tell us about it?
1: I'm not going to talk about too much about the name or what it's about, but, you know, it was, again, it was another way for us to, um, you know, the biggest thing that came from 40 Days despite the, the book or the, or the optioning of the movie or any of the success was that, the ability to connect to people and have this, these dialogues with people. I mean, thousands of people writing us emails saying, well, oh, your story's like mine, or you made me think about a past relationship, or you, you made me think about the way I've handled relationships. Having that, the ability to, to communicate to an audience like that, especially an audience beyond the design community, is something that is really important for both of us to try to continue to do. Because I think that, you know, for centuries, you have writers and filmmakers and artists who have put themselves in their work, you know, and their habits and their fears and their work. But you don't see that in a lot in the design community. And so I think we have unique ways as designers and art directors to tell stories in ways that maybe people haven't seen, you know. And so we want to continue to kind of do that. So this new project is, again, another Kind of robust project, similar to Forty Days, in sense of mixed media, video, writing, illustration, photography, all to tell this really personal story. And it's it's much it's much more raw and and kind of gut wrenching than Forty Days.
0: I can't wait yeah. to hear more about it. I, it's scary, but yeah. another project I, that seems to be inspired by Forty Days of Dating is your solo project, Memories of a Girl I Never Knew, which is very possibly my favorite project that you've done. Thank you. I love this work. Can you describe it for our listeners?
1: Yeah, I mean, Memories of a Girl I Never Knew was something that I started last summer, so just over a year ago. And obviously because of 40 Days, 40 Days allowed me to tear down, for both Jessica and I, to tear down a lot of walls that we're not interested in having up as a designer anymore. And I'm interested in vulnerability and how I can get that, infuse that in my work more. And I'm interested in, in sharing, you know, personal stories. And so what happened is that I was dating this girl. And as a self-proclaimed commitment phobe, see, <laughs> 40 Days of Dating, we broke up. Well, sh- she broke up with me. And, and, I'm sorry. Uh, this is the Barbara Walters moment. No, no, no. But, I start crying. <laughs> no, no, but she broke up with me. And, you know, as a self-proclaimed commitment phobe, I didn't know how to handle that really. You know, it had been a long time since I'd gone through something like that. I wasn't dealing with it well, and instead of just grabbing the whiskey, I decided to, you know, start writing as a way to kind of, as therapy, in a way to kind of like, well, how have I handled things in the past? Why do I have these issues with women? You know, how have I handled things or not handled things with different women that, you know, in situations I'm not necessarily happy about? Maybe I can get to some sort of truth with myself. So I just started writing and writing and writing, and then I had all this content and all these just, like, documents of stories or you know vignettes Yeah, right? yeah vignettes. and so i well, want to maybe i'll post one to instagram and so i crafted one honed it down to you know short enough to fit in a square but long enough to still be interesting and uh, and i posted it, and you know it's it was just amazing to see how people started responding as i posted them mm-hmm. weekly and so i think i've written about or posted about 55 of them so far it's therapy for me, and then and then it's also therapeutic to hit send on Instagram every time because it's always a little piece of you that you're like, wow, am I really gonna share this with an audience? But then it's been so amazing just to see how many people, hundreds of people, commenting on them or writing me emails. That makes me feel less alone in the world in a way. And it's like, oh, I'm not crazy. Just as much as they they're getting it from you know to read my stories and say, oh, well, someone feels like me. I'm getting it in return, and so. Yeah, it's
0: it's been it's been a lot of fun. And they're absolutely gorgeous. I printed out a few. Um was wondering if you might want to read one on the air. I'll give you a couple here to yeah, choose sure. from.
1: All right, we'll read this one. Four of my lady friends got engaged or married in the past year. I see those happy brides and their happy families, but I don't see their ex-boyfriends, those penises and arms and beards, or how they felt the first time they exchanged I love yous. I don't see the nice guy they hurt or those blind dates, one-night stands, college hookups, morning after pills, Tinder dudes, or late-night phone calls to their exes. I don't see when they thought they had herpes, the times they said, I hate that asshole, or when they worried they'd turn into a crazy cat lady just like their mom warned them. Now they say stuff like, I'm so old so I can't eat bread anymore because they found the love of their life and they're not worried about the divorce rate or unhappy marriage stats because this is their journey and their happiness and their man and they deserve the world.
0: Timothy, you have to do this as performance art. I
1: I have. I've been reading them at at lectures I give and stuff. But you know, you really
0: like this is this is stage worthy. (laughs) It's stage worthy material. It's beautiful. It's incredibly well written. And the way you read them is filled with so much passion. Well, I really
1: appreciate that. It's it's really been one of my favorite things I've worked on and and again, you know, we should write and d- draw and, and not be held down by what people want you to do or that you have to be some sort of graphic designer who works in a certain box.
0: You're now teaching at SVA. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. I read that you frequently tell your students that they need to get better at getting their ideas out of their heads. And start making things without the worry of success. That's the threshold between letting the fear control you and taking a step with the fear for a dance. So what is your advice for helping anyone take that step closer to dancing with the fear?
1: You know, I always love when I'm at a place with my work that I I sit back and I'm like, you know, I'm not quite sure I like that. I'm not quite sure how I feel about that. And sometimes, a lot of times, that's good because you're in unknown territory. And I think that's, you know, with me and Jessica and our new project and with 40 Days, we're trying to create a space where we don't really have anything to lean on in terms of reference. We're trying to carve out some little space in a corner of the kind of work we want to do that kind of feels fresh and raw and vulnerable and isn't afraid to show the fear.
0: I can't wait to see what you do next, Tim. Thank you, Debbie. Timothy Goodman, thank you so much for being on Design Matters today. To find out more about Timothy Goodman, go to his website, tgoodman.com. This year, we're celebrating the 10th anniversary of Design Matters. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Melman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
1: Design Matters with Debbie Millman is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Rainy Ortega. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store.